Can you hear me this morning? This morning. No, you can't? Sorry. <laughs> Although it's open. This way? Better? Yeah, it's better? All right. Do I need a mic, you think? I'll try to speak up. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning, uh, dear colleagues. What a pleasure to be here again at Oxford to um, be part of this conference and exchange a couple of ideas on uh, atrocities and uh, mostly today on ways how to know atrocities. Uh, thank you for the invitation to the organizers and also my congratulations to the organizers uh, because it's very clear that you have been very successful in uh, influencing Her Majesty's agenda, it seems. As you see, the handshake of history not coincidentally took place two days before this conference. This is no coincidence, obviously. Now we know that um, in Northern Ireland forgiveness has been uh, offered and reconciliation has been reached and all transitional justice issues have been solved. So, congratulations. <laughs> all right, my talk today is on epistemologies from below. It's a slightly different title than the one that was on the program beforehand, but the content is basically the same. It is about population-based research. And in other words, how to extract information, how to provide information, how to find information from countries, from populations where um, atrocities have been taken place. And I would like to, to build it up um, in this way. Uh, most of the, um, the talk will be about talking um, on some quantitative surveys that have been conducted over the past couple of years. And I would like to give you a sense of what can be in such a survey by drawing on uh, the experience of our own research at Leuven University, where we have tried to, uh, to build up a research agenda on um, these population-based researches. Um, I would like to finish off that part by talking about some strengths and weaknesses, uh, because obviously it's not my intention uh, to tell you all the details about uh, these kind of surveys. In fact, uh, there are other uh, ways to do that, and otherwise I would have to ask for the rest of the day, um, uh, I imagine, uh, to give you all the details. So what I try to do is um, take some data from the research and, and indicate how they can be useful in a long-term process of transitional justice and dealing with the past. And then I would briefly like to uh, bounce off with you actually a bit of a new idea which I call the IDP approach um, and uh, well let's keep it as a suspense for the moment what IDP stands for uh, because you may have all kinds of ideas on what this is all about. Okay, now, transitional justice, as much as we think we know exactly what's been covered by this field, I still briefly would like to remind us that there are very broad notions um, under this uh, general umbrella. And one of the broad notions is that the idea, which was originally there, let's say, 15 to 20 years ago, on political transitions has basically been given up, uh, although it's still, uh, of course, transitional justice is still about countries that have gone from authoritarian rule to democratic forms of government, but much broader than that these days. Because there could also be cases of large-scale uh, abuse of human rights, which are now entered into the field of transitional justice. Uh, take the Canadian or Australian case about the lost generations, the residential schools, the um, sexual abuse related to that. In a broad sense, and in fact, if we take the um, definition of the Secretary General's report seriously, then they would enter into the transitional justice field. And that, of course, changes a lot and also means that in terms of extracting information, it could open up new uh, possibilities. 
The second is that in legal terms, um, as was just said by, by you, I think, uh, uh, transitional justice now is moving towards the area of international crimes with its own particular legal dynamics. Um, in the past, I would say, before the ICC was established, it had a more uh, human rights twist to it, and obviously that is still there, but if you really want to get good information and information that is useful for particular courts or the international criminal justice system in general, then it means that questions asked to any person um, in the field would also have to have that particular criminal element to it, or at least allow information to be translated into criminal law terms, which is quite a challenge uh, in the field, obviously. <coughs> Uh, our colleague Kieran McAvoy from uh, Belfast has uh, termed transitional justice from below, as you know. So um, here what we are doing, and also in this uh, session and, and others, is trying to understand what that means, transitional justice from below, and in particular epistemologies from below, because most of them, in fact, are from above. Most of the information uh, reached uh, and uh, given to uh, us in the field academics as well as practitioners, is from above. And the account on the media reports uh, earlier on today are quite illustrative in this regard. So what I would like to argue is that if academics or whomever are interested in uh, designing epistemologies from below, they will have to take certain things into account. What is the field of research? What is the research design? Very, very important. The classical questions, who to ask questions to, what about, how to do that, and maybe uh, the most important of all, why? What is the final aim of asking questions to people, and how does that feed in a long-term process? One of the um, tricky issues, I would argue, is the idea or the question whether epistemology is from below or alternative, or whether they're complementary. Maybe we can discuss that uh, later. Now, a couple of words on these um, uh, researches, and I call them researches in plural, because there have been some researches. In fact, I will only deal with quantitative researches for the moment, quantitative surveys, knowing that there is much more. There are qualitative studies as well, and some are, have um, aspects of both. In fact, I would only like to... Uh, focus on this one because it's a limited uh, format and limited time frame, obviously. The basic idea is the idea that also qualitative research would have is to have information about people's opinions and attitudes on dealing with the past, past uh, or uh, backward looking, sorry, retrospective looking, or uh, and reconstructing the future, forward looking, prospective. Some examples of uh, quantitative surveys that have been around for a number of years now um, are the countries that you see here. Some countries have been uh, seeing surveys passing by uh, several times, like uh, Uganda is one of these countries where at least uh, three, maybe more surveys have been conducted over a number of years, which makes it interesting to start comparing the results. But as you can see, it's not a very extensive list. In fact, the list is fairly limited, at least of the researches that are up to standards when it comes to methodology because collecting data is one, but doing it in, in a proper way that also allows for control later on, confirmation, corroboration, and so on, is not so easy. These are some of the, the pictures, just to, uh, to enlighten the, uh, the presentation. This is, uh, well, for those of you who are interested, it's the same boy wearing different clothes, and that's uh, illustrative of the Canadian example, and I'm sure the Australian one is very similar. 
Now, uh, some of the common features of quantitative surveys thus far have been to use semi-structured questionnaires. In other words, to have questionnaires where a number of answer answering categories have been predefined, and here and there open some, um, some possibility or leave some possibility for qualitative uh, um, interpretation. Like some surveys have a question, well, what is uh, reconciliation to you? Or what is reparation to you? Not pre-structuring the answer, but leaving it open. Usually they're in combination um, with uh, each other, so semi-structured. They are administered in most of the cases on a face-to-face uh, -face basis. That is to say through personal interviewing, which is really important because it uh, requires a lot of resources, obviously, to go to the field, to talk to people personally, and then to take away the information after uh, uh, half an hour, one hour, two hours interview. Some of them uh, have not used the face-to-face -face, uh, uh, design, let's say, but are using questionnaires, which are then uh, distributed and then uh, later on sent back. That's another possibility. Um, usually, quantitative surveys of this kind uh, are administered to the population at large. That is to say, in the whole country, or uh, at least uh, the particular region affected, or of a specific section of the population. And here it becomes tricky because here we enter the whole <laughs> difficult question of representativity. How is it possible to guarantee some form of representativity if you focus on a population in one particular area or a particular section of the population for that matter. So how broad should a, a survey actually be to draw some valid conclusions? Of course they always work with a sample, that's true. It's impossible to ask the population uh, in its entirety. No, a sample is always there. But in post-conflict countries or in conflict, uh, countries where the conflict is still ongoing, it's particularly difficult to uh, make sure that the sample is uh, drawn from in a statistically uh, valid way. Because usually the universe from which the sample has to be drawn is not very well known. So that's a, a particular difficulty. And usually what you get um, in these uh, surveys is a combination of local people and international people, international experts who come in, who uh, try to work together, also sometimes validate the questionnaire, uh, and indefinitely, in all the cases, use local people also to go uh, out into the field, to go out, uh, also for translation purposes, obviously, and um, to uh, come up with a joint uh, report. Now, I would briefly like to, uh, to focus on one specific element when it comes to transitional justice, and that is reparations, reparations for victims. And I would like to do so on the basis of two of the researches that our institute has been involved in, one on uh, Bosnia and one on the Congo, and show you a little bit um, what can come out uh, uh, from these researches. First of all, when we talk about reparations, uh, well, I imagine it's a very broad concept and different people may have different <coughs> ideas of what reparations are all about. But if we take some kind of guideline now, and literally they are called the basic principles and guidelines on reparation, the so-called Van boven Bassiuni principles, then we find five categories of what reparations uh, are currently understood, understood as uh, in international law. They're non-binding just to make sure, but they are there and they are serving as sources of inspiration for uh, courts and uh, international case law. So restitution, 
uh, of property mostly. Compensation, financial compensation, indicates that restitution is not possible. Rehabilitation, medical, psychological of uh, victims. Satisfaction, this is more like the symbolic uh, area, uh, symbolic measures area, uh, whereby commemoration days could be um, established or uh, funds in honor of uh, people could be established. But also issues like the sense for justice, the sense for truth, and finding out what happened uh, can be part of this. And finally, a very broad and a bit of an intricate and difficult category to uh, sort of come to terms with is guarantees of non-repetition. What it basically means is institutional reform, reforming the institutions <coughs> of the state and of society to such an extent that it would become very difficult in the future to have similar conflicts and similar crimes again. Um, one particular example is a survey which uh, our institute has conducted in Bosnia in 2006, and in fact it was a sequel to that in Serbia in 2007, but I will only uh, touch upon the Bosnian part. Uh, this took place with semi-structured questionnaires with two parts, one on victimization, what happened to you basically during the war, after the war, and secondly on post-war justice, a number of issues related to that and what people thought about that. Uh, these were tested, first of all, through interviews with a number of key informants, key persons in the countries themselves, and later on administered. Here it's called administered on a retrieval basis, and you may wonder what that is. Uh, basically, we tried another uh, type of uh, methodology in using students. Uh, maybe they felt abused as well, but uh, at least we used them uh, from the University of Sarajevo, and we asked them to go back to their villages and towns all over the country, to give out questionnaires according to a certain methods and obviously following certain criteria to people and then to take back, to um, uh, get the questionnaires back in a week or 10 days from them. And that has ensured a very high response rate, as you can imagine, which is one of the big problems uh, normally if you do like these questionnaires, which are not on a face-to-face -face basis. It's very hard to get uh, uh, enough of them back to uh, draw conclusions. Um, in this case, the Bosnian case is 85%. In the Serbian case, it's even more than 90% of all the questionnaires were uh, returned. Um, and as you can see, in Bosnia, this uh, ended up being a, a sample of 855, uh, a little bit more even, in, uh, in Serbia. Um, so the national and international act, uh, aspect was also there. So this is, for example, a question that came out of the survey and um, where we can have a brief look at. Um, how would you rate the suffering that was caused to you during the war? Uh, and just to make things clear, um, these categories, physical harm, material harm, and emotional harm, were not in the questionnaire. They were actually illustrated through particular questions, like have you been subject of torture, has your house been destroyed, have you been moved out of your house, or things like that. Uh, it's, uh, later on, it's a requalification, let's say, by the researchers to actually put them in those th three categories. Obviously, going into all the details would lead us very far, but I would briefly like to, you to have a look at the, the two uh, figures that are in bold and uh, underlined. And one is the material harm. 54% of the people uh, interviewed say they uh, very much uh, were affected by the, um, all kinds of material harm during the conflict, during the war. 69% says they were strongly affected by emotional issues during the war. 
And honestly speaking, for us, this was uh, an eye-opener as a research team, because as much as uh, talk has been given on physical harm, what happened to people in person, and on material harm, being chased out of their houses and what have you, but the emotional harm is almost never touched upon. So here what you see is from a very simple um, survey is all of a sudden emerges a third major issue which is hardly addressed in many uh, post-conflict or ongoing conflict areas, which is the emotional harm, the traumatization. And um, in other words, we think that this figure only is already worthwhile ha having conducted the survey because it, it, it opens up a new area of uh, further uh, research and also further thinking in relationship to the international criminal justice institutions as well, for example. Uh, here again, this is something that um, obviously could uh, be the, the, the focus of discussion for a long time, but um, if asked the question, what would make you feel better about what happened during the war, the question about reparations basically, then um, a number of people are very adamant in saying that um, if they would know what happened to the relatives, the third line here, uh, which really make them feel better, 47% says uh, very strongly so, if memorials would be built for those who uh, suffered, if the truth about all the facts and events would be known. Um, so you see a couple of trends emerging from these uh, simple figures, which are quite interesting to have a further look at. Uh, the sense for truth, I think, is very important. The sense for honoring those who suffered, who uh, did not come back from the conflict, is uh, very important. On the other hand, also have a look at some counterintuitive tendencies. Um, if I could tell a uh, person interviewed to others about my experience, well, it would not really make me feel better. Maybe it opens up old, old wounds, and maybe it's very difficult to talk about that, which is a bit in line with the earlier uh, assessment of the trauma um, in, the, in the society, and if all those who suffered the violence would forgive those who were responsible for it, uh, well, entails a very high counter um, argument here. 35% thinks that's a very bad idea. So, so much for uh, forgiveness and for uh, turning the page and moving on. So, these things are just um, a, an indication of what can come out of such a survey. Then very briefly on the Congo, um, this is a joint research between our institute and the International Peace Research Association, uh, IPRA, that was done in 2008. Again, uh, questionnaires, semi-open to open questionnaires even, on a number of issues, uh, violence and victimization in the Congo, uh, but also justice and sustainable peace. So in fact, this is a bit, a bit wider than just uh, talking about justice and post-conflict justice, uh, or in the case of the Congo, it's hard to talk about post-conflict, it's uh, better to talk about ongoing conflict, but it, it's in that broad framework of peace, peace-building, and sustainable peace. This was um, even more developed with partners, um, in conjunction with partners from the Congo, and uh, the way in which this was done was partly through intensive seminars in nine of the 11 uh, provinces of the Congo, where the researcher has been, uh, has set up seminars, like a whole day discussion seminar to provide information about all kinds of issues, about the legal framework, about the violence in the Congo, uh, about um, yeah, uh, sensitivities that the uh, attendees to the conference or to the seminar would have, and at the end of the seminar, the questionnaire was filled in. 
Uh, all in all, about 800 people have done so, about 100 per uh, province, a little bit uh, less. Uh, and this was a combined audience of academic people, legal professionals, uh, and also uh, NGOs. So very briefly, since my time is uh, running fast, one of the dominant conclusions, if not the most dominant, is the issue of security. Now, this will probably not surprise us, because security in an ongoing conflict is even more important than in a post-conflict situation, but security is really, really very important. And in fact, most people indicate very clearly that without security in the daily lives, the private lives, the public lives, it is impossible to even start thinking about sustainable peace. On all of the categories of uh, reparation that we just mentioned, strangely enough, restitution never comes up. Restitution of property never comes up. And here, again, room for hypothesization. Uh, we can talk about that later on. Compensation, however, is around, um, and both individually, uh, and you see some averages here on a five-point scale, uh, uh, but also for communities. Interesting. The communal element is uh, definitely prominently present in that Congolese survey. Rehabilitation is not forgotten. Uh, some people often say, well, in those kind of conflicts, it's all about different things. It's about money. Uh, but it's also about victims, their traumatization, their psychological readaptation. What is also interesting is that uh, prosecutions and justice are part of that uh, survey also. Uh, you see uh, the averages here, more than four out of a five-point scale, is quite high. Uh, and on the other hand, if you compare that with the uh, idea, well, should amnesties be granted uh, to the perpetrators, then most of the people say no. Uh, the average there is very low. And strangely enough, in the Congo, more than in any other survey I have seen thus far, is that the last category of institutional reform is really very much highlighted. For example, many people indicate that as much as it is important to receive some money here and there or to have uh, uh, trauma counseling for victims, an accessible health care, social security, official judicial systems are important, if, in fact, to build up the institutional framework of, uh, of a country. This is the last one. Uh, so I'll try to wrap up very briefly, but um, obviously I'm not doing right to all the data uh, by uh, you know, rushing through them. But on the other hand, what they do um, tell us, I think, is, are a couple of interesting things. First of all, voices from the field. In fact, uh, the word was uh, spread uh, earlier on uh, this morning. Voices from the field are extremely important to actually have a better view of what is really going on and how populations think about that. Uh, in our view, it uh, engenders, it entails an additional source of information, not only about specific issues of post-conflict justice, uh, uh, setting up truth or uh, providing truth or symbolic measures or prosecutions or reconciliation, but also about victimization. Uh, sometimes it's interesting, and in criminology we speak of self-reporting uh, surveys. Well, here you sometimes have the possibility of digging deeper into issues of victimization which official reports are not tackling or not touching upon. Of course, there are also lots of weaknesses or, in modern speak, we say challenges. Um, for example, um, ongoing violence. How to do research in situations of ongoing violence? Very difficult, not only for the researcher, but very dangerous, in fact, for the interviewee. Yeah, because you never know what's going to happen uh, later on when the researcher or the research team has left. 
Um, but also it, it tells us something about the methods that are used or have to be used when you're doing that kind of research. For example, in Uganda uh, or in the Congo or uh, Colombia for the moment where we also do some research, but qualitative, uh, it's uh, important. Difficult issues that come up and that continue to come up all the time, also in the dialogue between uh, qualitative and quantitative research is the issue of representativity. Obviously, that's a, a well-known one. Or others say, well, we shouldn't even aim for representativity. It's better to aim for a thick understanding, uh, uh, a thick reading of uh, transitional justice issues, and that's more than enough uh, to move forward. Uh, two other issues I would really like to highlight here is the static versus the dynamic account. Why think that people at one point in time only have one particular idea of what they think, what they need, what their perceptions are? They may be moving all the time. They may be changing all the time. Next week they may be different, uh, depending on additional information, additional experiences, and things like that. So let's be extremely careful with figures that come out of a one-time research. Because at the end of the day, and certainly like six, seven years ago, what does it mean? It, it, it becomes relevant and significant over time if they are repeated. And finally, something uh, which I think we should not underestimate is the difference between attitudes and opinions. Uh, people may have attitudes about all kinds of issues, but the way in which they express these issues may be very different. How do you know whether what they say is really what they think? is really what they um, are, um, are uh, adamant uh, about. Huh? That, that tension is always there. And it, in fact, it's a tension that is also there. Uh, this is really the last slide uh, in public opinion research. <laughs> public opinion research, in fact, what I uh, suggest and what our team suggests is to borrow more from ordinary public opinion research. Because basically all of the questions come back. Qualitative, quantitative, representativity, opinions, expressions, what have you. Um, and it could be useful both for legitimacy reasons and for effectiveness reasons to uh, think of a cycle of empirical work. A cycle where qualitative and quantitative are integrated, where at least several snapshots are taken over time in order to be able to compare. And here is the IDP approach. Uh, contrary to what many uh, of us will be thinking, internally displaced people. Uh, no, it's information, dialogue, and process. Information is extremely important to describe and analyze a situation, but it doesn't mean anything unless it is discussed in a dialogue, a personal but also social dialogue. What do the figures mean? To collect figures is one thing, it's actually the easiest part. What do they mean? Is a, is a very difficult issue. That's what the dialogue is for. And if um, policy wants to do something valid, international criminal justice or government policy or what have you, on reparations, then to design a process is very important to actually allow uh, the people, victims or others, to be engaged in a process like that. And here we suggest to have a closer look at the ideal speech situation that Jürgen Habermas has been defining in completely <coughs> different circumstances, uh, in a completely different realm, but the five principles that he has been talking about. And maybe this could be an interesting way of creating a more dynamic approach to quantitative surveys and to population-based research in general. Thank you so much. I'm sorry for that.